Every curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Art eventually comes face-to-face with the chalk mule. He's on a shelf now in art storage, but for a long time, the chalk mule sat on a cart in the aisle. You had to walk around him to get through. This massive block of stone carved into a figure reclining, sort of awkwardly, his knees bent, his back about 45 degrees off the ground, like he's doing sit-ups. His head is cocked to the side, eyes wide open, like you've caught him in the act of something. His hands are in his lap, where the museum used to say the ancient Maya would place offerings, like a human heart. Do you see this chakmul in storage? And you think, what is that doing there? I mean, it's a chakmul. He's on tote bags, coffee mugs, keychains. He's the unofficial ambassador, overlord, uber dude of Mexico. And now, here in the museum, this chakmul collects dust. It wasn't always this way. He used to be front and center in the galleries at Mia, as the museum is sometimes called now. In the 1950s, this chakmul was an exhibition of masterpieces at Mia. From 1958 to 1960, he toured Europe as an icon of pre-Columbian culture. Munich, Zurich, Paris, Rome. Molly Huber was a curator at Mia in what was then the Department of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas. And she says that by the time she started there, in 1998, the Chakmul was already firmly in storage. Quote, to my eye, she says, it looked kind of rough. And the more I learned about pre-Columbian art, the more rough it looked. It doesn't look right at all. The story behind it, she says, like a lot of other non-Western collecting in the early days of the museum, is not quite Indiana Jones, but close. Not that fast and loose, she says, but awfully fast and loose. She says any curators who were intrigued by this apparent masterpiece were, quote, kind of warned. Don't touch the chalk mule. The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the cautionary tale of Chuck Mool and the blinding desire to believe. I'm Tim Gehring. Now, I'm recording this once again at home in the midst of the pandemic. I haven't seen the Minneapolis Chuck Mool in some time. But rest assured, he's there on the shelf. Like the rest of us, he's not going anywhere.
1873. Augustus Le Plongeon and his wife, Alice, sail from the United States to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, where Cancun is today, and back then was a swamp called the Den of Serpents. But Augustus and Alice have not come for beaches. They've come for ruins, and they find them all over the place. These ancient Mayan temples tucked in the jungle. They have a stereo camera, and Alice produces some of the first photographs of these ruins. They start poking around like they own the place. Eventually, they find their way to Chichen Itza, the massive Mayan temple complex, and start digging. They're digging with nothing but tree branches and a few hired hands. And there they find, 10 feet under the platform of the eagles and the jaguars, an enormous statue. Head turned to the side, hands on lap. Augustus calls it, for reasons not entirely clear, Chakmul. Now, it should be said that Augustus believes in Atlantis, the sunken island, the lost civilization. Seriously. As serious as Augustus's chest-length beard. So did a lot of armchair anthropologists back then, including Ignatius Donnelly, the Minnesota politician and utopia builder, who almost single-handedly revived the concept. So Augustus starts interpreting all this ancient Mayan symbolism they're uncovering and decides there was a Queen Mu who was married to Chakmul. And after Chakmul's death, Queen Mu departs for the land of Mu, also known as Atlantis. And from Atlantis, she goes to Egypt. Now it's all BS, right? But the thing about believing in Atlantis is that you need a reason to believe. Otherwise, what are you doing? And the reason for a lot of people back then is racism. Like the European scholar who can't quite believe that Africans created such exquisite art. So, you know, must have been made by Atlanteans. For Augustus, who had been to Egypt, He can't believe the Egyptians created hieroglyphs and the pyramids. So he decides the Mayans inspired the Egyptians via Atlantis. Now, Augustus wants to take this chakmul back to the United States. So he builds an enormous cart and has it dragged through the jungle for 15 days. But the local Mexican government is like, uh, no. We'll take that chakmul, thank you. So now, there's 150 Mexican laborers pulling the chakmul 18 miles through the Yucatan, down a path they're hacking out with machetes. News of this spreads around the world with fantastical details. Like the Mexican laborers claiming to hear the chakmul 
whispering to them each night in their Mayan dialect, Let's go. Let's go. Augustus and Alice spend the next 12 years in the Yucatan. And soon, dozens of Chakmul statues start to be discovered. In the ruins of temples, all the way from central Mexico down to El Salvador. 14 in Chichen Itza alone. Chakmul becomes one of those iconic symbols of the ancient Americas. Quite possibly the bearer of offerings of human heart sacrifices, from this world to the supernatural. And you know what that means. What collector wouldn't want, somehow, some way, to get one? Minneapolis gets his chalk mule in 1947. From a dealer in Los Angeles, one of the top sources for pre-Columbian artifacts at the time, it's said to have come from, quote, near Chichen Itza. In 1949, one of the museum supporters, a Catherine Kitty Overstreet, poses with the chalk mule for a local newspaper. She's standing beside him while holding up another recent pre-Columbian purchase, a pair of golden ear spools to her own ears. A publicity photo for a cruise for kids in the galleries in Mexico must have been one of the stops. The museum really wants to show it's committed to being a global encyclopedia museum. And it gets the attention it wants. Pretty soon, the Minneapolis Chalk Mool is on his way to Europe, the masterpiece of the Americas. It's not until the 1970s that a curator at MIA starts sending photos of the Chalk Mool to other curators around the world with one big question. The dealer who sold Mia the Chakmul was a guy named Earl Stendhal, a guy from small-town Wisconsin who moved to L.A., starts selling art, and eventually, as World War II was heating up, stumbles into a niche, pre-Columbian art. The Stendhal Galleries closed in 2017, and their archives are now at the Getty Research Institute in L.A., Mary Miller, a scholar of pre-Columbian art, is now the director there and has spent more time than most thinking about Earl Stendhal in the early era of collecting. She says a fair number of those pieces that Stendhal trafficked in, along with legitimate artworks, were looted or forged, were spliced together from disparate pieces. He had a gift, she says, for gluing broken-off heads or arms onto broken torsos. Sometimes as they should be. Sometimes like Frankenstein. 
Now, that curator at Mia in the early 1970s, a woman named Ellen Bradbury, in the summer of 1974, she sends a photo of the Chakmul to a curator at the Field Museum in Chicago, who writes back, quote, It appears to me to be a poor and rather modern copy, he says. A copy of the Chakmul that Le Plongeon found. Judging from the stone, he thinks the forger might have lived in a certain quiet village known for pulque, the ancient booze of the gods. Mary Miller at the Getty points me to a photo of a Chakmul that was once in the garden of Walter and Louise Ahrensberg, next-door neighbors and friends and clients of the Stendals in L.A. It's fake, she says. And she notes how awfully similar it looks to the Chakmul at Mia, from the ears to the base. The Minneapolis Chakmul may well have been, at least for a time, a very expensive lawn ornament. In any case, by November 1974, Ellen Bradbury is responding to inquiries about the Chakmul with a simple, humble statement. Quote, We consider ourselves the unfortunate owners of a fake. Molly Huber says the Chakmul just does not look right especially now that you can see a lot of examples all over the internet. Eventually, at Mia, Chakmul just sinks out of sight until there really is only one thing you can do with it. In 1985, Chakmul is put in a show called Problems in Connoisseurship and Conservation. And in 2009, Molly pulls him out again for a show of masterpieces at Mia as the counterexample, the fallen god. But she gets how it happened. Molly says sometimes people want to believe. They want to believe an object is what people say it is. Their relationships at stake, donors to please, reputations to build. You spend a lot of money on something you're not suddenly going to start asking questions. The museum, she says, was invested in the romance of it. They were focused on the exotic. The late Alan Shestak was the director of Mia when the Minneapolis Chakmul was receding from sight. And years ago, he wrote about how hard it was for curators to walk away from a great piece. We are, quote, inherently greedy collectors, he wrote, who go into this business because the desire to accumulate and bring together objects of quality is in our blood. He recalled a meeting he had with a dealer, but a Greek terracotta head that a colleague was convinced was a forgery. This is like the early 1970s, and he asked the dealer, could you tell me a little bit about the history of ownership of this object? 
or at least when it came into this country. And the dealer says, better not to ask. And Alan is like, pardon me? And the dealer says, you won't get into any trouble. No one knows where it came from. There's no one looking for it. And Alan says, um, now you've made me not want to buy it. But look, in 1947, the Minneapolis Institute of Art is just 32 years old. Minneapolis itself is less than a century old. Its tallest building is a 32-story tower built by a fraud who landed in Leavenworth. And it's going to remain the tallest until the 1970s. In the 1940s, the media out east still refer to this region as the Northwest, a territory that dissolved in 1803, as though it's still out on the frontier. The city desperately wants to prove itself. It's the reason there's a Minneapolis Institute of Art at all. So the museum is swinging for the fences as though it's playing catch-up. It lands some genuine masterpieces, like Rembrandt's Lucretia from 1666. But sometimes, when you swing for the fences, you whiff. In 1925, Mia buys a painting by Titian, the greatest painter of the Venetian Renaissance. There were less than a dozen Titians in American museums at the time, and suddenly there's one in a 10-year-old museum in Minneapolis. It's not the greatest Titian. It may not even be a great painting. But that didn't matter so much in 1925. Quote, it stands for more than the purchase of a hundred less popular pictures, the museum said at the time. It symbolizes an ideal. It was a big fish in a small pond. There's a poem called Father in the Minneapolis Chalk Mole, written in the late 1980s by a fine poet named Stephen Sandy, who died just a few years ago. Stephen had grown up in Minneapolis and knew the chalk mule when it was still in good standing, as it were. And now, as he wrote, quote, Can it be? The Minneapolis chalk mule unveiled is fake. That eyes right corker I'd adored since childhood, leering at the Chinese tomb guardians in the next gallery back at him. The label notes, He's been widely exhibited, here and abroad. Yet now they know. The entire sculpture made for market, from skull to toe. Old man, he writes, I wish you well. Old man, I send you love. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gearing. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe, write a review, share the pod. 
And thank you very much for listening. I hope you're well. Thank you.